welcome everyone today. Hey, how are we doing, everybody? That's what I'm talking about. We're in a series called Below the Waterline, How Unseen Things Change Everything, and I've got some tough news to begin with today. By the way, some really cool news is Jake Christopher and I, my right-hand man, we're going to tag team teach this thing, and uh, we're going to go back and forth and back today, so we're going to have a little bit of fun. 80% of people under the age of 18 are lonely sometimes versus just 40% of those over 65. 43%, these are staggering numbers, these are new numbers that are just coming out. 43% of those ages 17 to 25 feel lonely and less than half of them feel loved. 22% of Gen Xers say they have no close friends at all. 50%, about half of 5 million adults that are in the UK, you ready for this? 50% of adults in the UK say that TV is their main companion. 73% of millennials, the most lonely demographic in our population today, say that they are lonely. The suicide rate is also very high among those aged 10 to 20. It's increased 56% between 2007 and 2017, the latest data. The percentage of lonely high school seniors went from 26% in 2012 to 39% in 2017. That's before COVID. Uh, the stats go on and on here, guys. Loneliness is not a gender issue. In fact, the numbers are pretty close. 41 point, uh, excuse me, 46.1% of men say that they are very lonely and women are at 45.3%. The stats go on and on. In the Anglican church, pastors are saying that they believe 65% of their people in the UK are struggling with loneliness. Nearly one in four adults aged 65 and older are socially isolated. Social isolation is associated with about 50% increased risk of developing dementia. Chronic loneliness is also associated with a weakened immune system, cardiovascular disease, high blood pressure, type 2 diabetes, and a wor worsening morbidities and comorbidities throughout our culture today. I mean, the list goes on and on. I've got research paper after research paper here. Thank you to Jerry Yao, who's been forwarding me a ton of these over the last few weeks. I mean, one of the crazy stats that we have here is that the multiple mass shootings and much of the suicide rate that we see today, they believe, sociologists believe, is triggered primarily through, just through loneliness. And if you want a crazy stat, on MD Links, they've done an extensive study, they find that being lonely and unhappy accelerates aging more than smoking. They say that you can take a pack of cigs and if you've got an actual close friend, they're about awash with the general population. That's how hurting our population is today. The list goes on and on. And I haven't even gotten into the demographics of, of the wokeness of our culture today because we live in a world today where we've got people who are trying to rewrite the nature of man and the heart and the need that we have for each other and for a transcendent God. And there's a movement today that's got us paralyzed with fear. We don't know what square to step in. 
There's a growing aloneness and loneliness because we can't know if we can even speak our mind. If we step in this square, I'm wrong. If I step over here, I'm wrong. If I step over here, I'm wrong. So what do we do? What have we done? We've gone into a hole of isolation. And it's killing us today. We have a crisis in society. And sadly, guys, it's bleeding into the church. And it doesn't have to be that way. Does God have a plan to address the crisis? Yes, he does. Come on, Ajit. Yes, he does. God has a plan. In the last few weeks, we've been looking at spiritual disciplines of prayer and reading God's word and meditation and confession. A lot of these are inward-looking disciplines where you engage with it in your deepest, you know, in your closet, in your room, in your prayer room, wherever that is. Today, we're going to look at God's answer by looking at a discipline that's focused outward, the discipline of fellowship. And I want to introduce you to one word if you haven't heard this before this word was a big thing among bible college circles about 10 years ago i was talking with one of my friends here and i was like i don't hear this word that much you know when i was a student 10 years ago this was the thing and i'm like we need it as much now as it was then but i want to draw your attention to this word and every time you think of the word fellowship our the, the, the title of our sermon is deep fellowship and every time you think of the word fellowship i want you to remind remember this word, and here it is, koinonia. Come on, say it with me, koinonia. Or I'm pronouncing it wrong again, it's koinonia. <laughs> There's a funny story, we do koinonia in India, so that's how we say it, so it's koinonia here, right? Am I right? It's koinonia. Let's say it together right one more time, just for my sake, koinonia. What does that mean? The biblical concept of koinonia, which is often translated as fellowship, is much more than saying hi on a Sunday, warm greetings, or just a time to hang out after church. And this was something that was a rude awakening for me. I remember being, uh, uh, you know, fresh you know, an immigrant here, going to Moody Bible Institute. I would just walk, be walking on the street, and then I'd be like, hey, how's it going? And I'd be like, oh, man, this guy wants to know how it's going. So I would stop, and I'd try to, like, give him an extended answer, and he would just walk off. <laughs> like, what is going on? He just asked me how it's going, and I'm trying to answer him. What's going on? Well, apparently, then I figured out it's just uh, a greeting. They're not actually asking you how it's going. You just say, oh, it's great. <laughs> and now I don't even think about it. I'm like, how's it going? Oh, it's great. I'm, I'm walking as fast as the other guy is. But that's not koinonia. Koinonia conveys the sense of deep relationships, profound unity, a wholehearted life-on-life -life participation with each other. Some common synonyms for this word is communion, partnership, participation, fellowship. That's koinonia. 
The root adjective from which this noun is derived from means common, shared, public, which is in contrast to the word idios, which means private, individual, concerned only with oneself. In other words, for koinonia to take place, you must share what you have with others. And I think that's something that's really hard for us. We've grown accustomed to the me first mentality uh, where we're encouraged to do what makes us happy. And our individualistic culture is focused on pursuing our needs, our advancements, our success, our happiness. It's, it's a rat race. It's the survival of the fittest. You got to make it. You got to dig in and move forward. And we've seen what that has led to in terms of loneliness. And this is, as I said, a survival instinct because we live in a system that forces us to live in a certain way. We are forced to fend for ourselves because we don't have a societal structure that makes it possible, that gives us the space, the time, helps us to slow down so we can have deep fellowship, koinonia, with each other. But God has an answer for that. And this concept of koinonia, or koinonia, is first introduced in the book of Acts, chapter 2, verse 42 onwards, and here's, here's how it looks. It says, and they devoted themselves, again, the believers in the first church in the book of Acts, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, koinonia, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Look at the kind of life sharing that was involved in the early church. Spending regular time together, studying God's word and praying together, sharing resources and meeting each other's needs, worshiping together, eating together. Man, how rich this whole fellowship must have been. I don't think I've ever experienced something to this extent, but I think I might have growing up um, in India. Sundays was a big thing. You know, I grew up as a pastor's kid, so, you know, you got to go to church every Sunday, and that wasn't drudgery for us. I remember, I think when I was 17 years old, I was sick one Sunday, and I couldn't make it to church, and that was the first time in my memory ever that I had missed church. Like, I was there every Sunday, not because I had to, but because I loved to. And a lot of what made church fun was, you know, you're meeting friends, you're meeting family, and then church didn't end when the service ended. You know, we would stay for about a couple of hours after church, and then, you know, being the pastor's family, my mom and my grandmother used to cook at least for 10 extra people, knowing that they were going to come home after service. So you had 10, 15 people coming home. We we're having food together, having fun, and then invariably there's a cricket match going on. So we're all watching a cricket match, cheering for India. And when they finally leave, it's 10 o'clock. 
on Sunday evenings. And this was every Sunday. And it wasn't, there was something about just slowing down, having that space to have fellowship with each other, just communing with each other. It was, it was really special. It was koinonia. And obviously, koinonia, or koinonia, or whatever that is, I don't even remember anymore. <laughs> In the book of Acts, looks different to our culture today. Obviously, even here, we cannot replicate that right here. Because it looks different. It's, it's conditioned to the culture that we are in. If I think that I can replicate my life in India here, I am mistaken. Obviously, what looks for our culture is different. But koinonia needs to happen. Those deep friendships, those deep relationships, a wholehearted life-on-life partnership needs to happen and I want to like just look at a few scriptures here before we get really practical today. This word appears 17 times in the New Testament, and there's, there's so much depth to it. So I'm just going to give you a sprinkling of like what it is. And look at one major passage that gives us the why behind koinonia. Why do we need this fellowship other than the fact that, you know, there is this felt need of loneliness? Is there anything more? Like why koinonia? And... So the first verse I'm going to look at is 1 Corinthians 10, 16, which talks about the Lord's Supper. It's not going to be up on your screen. It says, the cup, the, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation, a koinonia, in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Again, fellowship or koinonia is an expression of our identity as part of the body of Christ. Whenever we take the Lord's Supper, when we have fellowship with each other, it's part of our identity because we're brothers and sisters in Christ. And I think of this story where Jesus, you know, Jesus is preaching and his mother and brothers are there. And so the multitudes, they tell him, hey, Jesus, your mother and your brothers are right there. And he goes, who am I? mother and my brothers. So you are my mother and, I, and my brothers. So you are my family because you do the will of God. And that's the identity that we have. You and I, we're family. We're brothers and sisters. And that's why koinonia needs to happen. Again, Koinonia also includes sharing resources. Hebrews 13, 16 says, Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Koinonia also includes fellowship in sufferings. You know, Philippians 3.10 says, I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. So we share in Christ's suffering. We share in one another's suffering as well. And then finally, Philemon 6, here Paul says, I pray that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your, your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of, sake of Christ. 
koinonia results in a greater understanding of the blessings that we have in Christ. As we get into this life-on-life -life participation, we get to see how rich, how enriching our Christian life, our walk with our fellow believers can be. So here's my big idea for today. If there's one thing you're leaving from here, obviously one, the word koinonia, and also the, you know, the mis mispronounce, whatever that is, so I'm, I'm, I'm probably have confused you with that. But here's what I want you to leave, uh, take home. Koinonia is not an optional, feel-good part of Christianity. In fact, it is an essential part of the gospel. It plays a pivotal role in the living out of the gospel, both vertically and horizontally. And I want to quickly look at another passage that explains this big idea. It's in 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. It says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, referring to Jesus, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that your joy may be complete. A few observations from this passage. Firstly, the goal of the gospel is fellowship with God. Koinonia with God. Look at verse 3. It says, That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. In a sense, in essence, the gospel is about reconciliation with God. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. That's what Ephesians says. This. We were dead, and God in his rich mercy has made us alive so that we can have koinonia with God. The goal of the gospel is koinonia with God. And then it goes on. It says, Koinonia not only begins with God, not only begins with the Godhead of the Trinity, but it flows out into the community of believers. And this is, is, this is vital. We don't engage in fellowship just because we need to. We do because that is who God is. God exists eternally as three persons in communion, in perfect communion with each other. It says, we have two persons that God had represented here. Our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. The fellowship of the Trinity, the Trinity is our model and source of our fellowship with other believers. And this is how it works. Jesus says, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Jesus has been loved radically by the Father. So Jesus loves us radically. We have been loved radically by Jesus. So what do we do? We love each other radically. One of my favorite books on the Trinity is called Delighting in the Trinity by Michael Reeves. And, and this is what he has to say about 
this, this concept. He says, as the Father, Son, and Spirit have always known fellowship with each other, so we in the image of God are made for fellowship. Now, of course, we haven't and don't tend to value fellowship, or at least not as highly as we value getting our own way. When Adam and Eve turned in on themselves in self-love in Genesis 3, they not only turned away from the Lord God, they turned away from each other. Thus, not only did their relationship with the Lord break down, their relationship with each other broke down. And he goes on, but the triune God's delight in family still stands. And so the Father sends the Son not only to reconcile us to himself, but to reconcile us to each other in order that the world might be a place of harmony, reflecting their harmony. Moving on, believing in Jesus is inseparable from koinonia with other believers. Verse 2 says, The life was made manifest, which we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you. And then verse 3, So that you too may have fellowship with us. Our Christian life cannot be lived in isolation. We have koinonia with each other. And finally, this koinonia leads to fullness of joy. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. I don't think we have yet experienced just the glory or, you know, just how enriching and how amazing koinonia life can be in our church body. We're going to get a little practical as Pastor Carl comes up, but I just want to say one last thing. What does koinonia look like when it's lived out? A few months ago, uh, we preached, I preached a sermon on, on the one another's in the Bible. There's 59 times, 59 commands of relating to one another in the Bible. It's up on your screen right now. These are all the verses that talk about relating to one another, having fellowship with, with one another. And some of the main themes include love, loving one another. It's the next slide. Honoring one another, forgiving one another, greeting one another, comforting one another. And it goes on, exhorting one another, instructing one another, doing good to one another, being kind to one another, showing hospitality, have fellowship, live in harmony. Speaking the truth, not judging. Imagine the potential of the koinonia life. How do we do that? How do we get practical? Pastor Carl's going to come up. Solomon was known to be one of the wisest men that walked this earth. And in his wisdom, he penned words for us about koinonia before koinonia was a Greek word. Just right, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit doesn't leave us as orphans. The Holy Spirit gives us the fuel that we need to love one another. The Holy Spirit moves, prompts, directs. The Holy Spirit, according to John 4, blows like a wind. That's why he's called the pneuma, the wind that fills the sails of our soul, reminds us the truth, and shows us how to live. But let's get practical. How practical is this? In Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 9 through 12, look at this. 
Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, who will withstand him? Two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Let me leave this verse up here. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. What is being spoken of here? Oh, this is so important to get. This verse is often used at marriages, and it's okay, but it's much more inclusive than that. It really means one plus one in, the, in God's kingdom means that there's a compounded impact that happens here, and I'll get to that in just a moment. Leave this slide here. This is very important to note. The third strand spoken of here is the presence of God. The whole context of Solomon's writing is about bringing God into any equation, or it is futile. You need a friend who brings God with them. Engineers know the value of three strands braided together. They call it fault tolerance. So when there's three strands that are braided together, there's a fault tolerance. In other words, one can be broken, but there's still two intertwined. It's an amazing thing. This is the way they build cables to hold up bridges. Somebody was reading Solomon. This allows a weak strand to rely on the other two. But God is the fault-proof strand that holds under any and every circumstance. He's the one that holds it all together. He's our backstop in relationship, and we desperately need him. So I want to explore from this verse right here the value of deep fellowship. I have three observations. Let me move through them quickly. Number one is multiplied impact. Multiplied impact. Do you know that in God's economy, this is true. Now hear me, men and women alike. One plus one equals three in God's economy. Always. Because God is there. I've had this happen in a really cool way with my bride. I've noticed something really cool. One night she was talking to me and she said, Hey, bub, if you come up here and join me in cooking dinner been a number of years ago now if you come up here and help me in cooking dinner there's something really cool that happens inside my heart and you know what I've learned about with me and my bride I love this girl so much 35 years we've been married and it's just a quick side note I didn't even plan on saying this but I gotta tell you man if you hang in there the stuff that once drove you crazy now turns you on it's really weird how that works But the one thing that I love about what my bride says that is so true is that when we find ourselves humbling ourselves and coming together, one plus one equals three. When we do projects together, there's this shared kind of mojo that comes out of that that's undeniable. One plus one equals three in God's economy. This is no better seen in the natural world than with my favorite horses on the planet. I love draft horses. We have those big old beasts up in Alaska. They're big, hairy boogers. They kind of look, look like Budweiser horses only. They're much more, uh, more blue-collar than Budweiser horses. Budweiser horses are like the white-collar guys. They're doing the thing. Draft horses 
are gray, long-haired, sweaty. They got muscles on their muscles. They're big. One draft horse can pull 8,000 pounds. So you would think two draft horses can pull 16. No! Two draft horses pull 24,000 pounds. One plus one equals three in God's economy. Some of you are going alone and you need koinonia. You need fellowship. You need deep fellowship. You need a friend. I spot checked a couple of people when I came in this morning. I walked up to them, kind of took them off guard. I said, hey, who's your closest friend? I said, I can't interpret that. Do you have something else for me? And this is what they came up with. No kidding. Two people, one man, one woman, they both said the same thing. Finding friends is really hard today. But when you are in the koinonia of the fellowship, there's something different. In Christ, we have nothing to prove, nothing to gain, nothing to lose. Now, I'm not saying you will never be burned in church. I've been burned in church. But we got to take risks, and we need to open up our chest cavity, and we'll get practical with this in a moment, because we need to be known don't try to walk this world alone. The reason that there are people who know Christ who find themselves peddling on their wives is because, first and foremost, they're isolated. Nobody knows them. I tell men all the time, if you go to the Proverbs, the way the young man takes the way to the streetwalker's home is that early on he could have preempted something there, but there was no one at that juncture for him to say, I'm tempted to go down that path. We need each other. And there is multiplied impact. Second one is what I've been alluding to already here. There is life support. And what Song of Solomon says, a little bit different, man. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And you might think that sounds odd. It does when you have central heating. But the historical cultural context of this passage is they didn't have central heating. And it gets colder than a well digger's backside at night. So what'd they do? They would huddle up together. Now, I know this because having camped in Alaska a lot, let me tell you, I learned something the first time I went into Resurrection Pass. I'm about 16 years old. I'm with um, my good friend Calvin and his dad Keith, and we are mushing about, oh, probably 20 dogs, one team of like 12, and I think I had eight, and they were on one sled, and I was alone on one sled, but that night we went snow caving, and we dug into the side of Trout Lake, and it was, we, we were, Trout Lake is here, and it's super cold, and we got up around some spruce boughs, and we hacked off with our hatchets some spruce boughs, laid down a big old bed of some evergreens, and then we put our sleeping bags over the top of those. And at first, I'm like, proper spacing. We're dudes. Dudes don't touch each other at night. That's rule one. Dudes don't touch each other at night. I, I got to tell you a funny story real quick. It's not even on my manuscript, but it just came to my heart. 
<laughs> I was at a Promise Keepers event in, da in Dallas, Texas, and they had overbooked the hotel that I had about 50 guys lined up for. We got there and they said, we got no rooms. I said, you're gonna get rooms. And they said, all right, we'll figure this out. I said, thank you. So they started finding rooms, finding rooms. They got down to the end and they said, we got one room. We got a queen bed left. And it was me and this hairy booger friend of mine named Michael Nauman. And I said, dude, I'm willing to get in that queen bed with you. But so help me if you touch me in the night. <laughs> he tells the story different. He's, he tells it like he threatened me. So help me, sucker, you touch me. <laughs> I don't know what happened, but about 3 a.m., all of a sudden, that hairy booger and I were laying there, and we both opened our eyes face to face, and we got an arm over one another. <laughs> he screamed, I screamed. We jumped out of the bed. Ha! <laughs> we were right across from one another, and we're like, man, and I told him, I said, the carpet's good for me. He goes, all right, man, all right. But in Alaska, in Resurrection Pass, we learned the reality of this. I kind of got my spacing with the sleeping bag, and Keith said, no, we're going to stay warm tonight. But we got those sleeping bags right up against one another, and on those spruce boughs, we stayed warm. Life support. Multiplied impact and life support. But I think the best part of this that Song of Solomon illustrates is that although a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. You need someone in deep fellowship who's got your back. They got your back. This life is a spiritual war, and Satan doesn't fight fair. People don't fight fair either, in case you haven't noticed. Defending has to be done from time to time, but having someone who has your back when you're getting bloodied from behind can save your life and help you to live to fight another day. And here's the added benefit. When someone has your back, you can venture deeper into enemy territory. You with me here? Our spiritual enemies never fight fair. Demonic forces are real, and they come at us from our blind side. Someone who's got your back is a true lifesaver. And I want you to know and this, I'm going to go full Pastor 101 on you right now. To attempt to walk in victory spiritually, if you walk alone, you will get your spiritual booty kicked. I have never known a victory in Jesus Christ that didn't include another person. So I'm going to ask you this morning, who's got your back? Who's got your back? Who is that person that you can say, I've got multiplied impact with this person. One plus one equals three. Because I know them, they know me. I don't wander down the path toward her house because the minute I get tempted, I call them up and go, man, I am about to take a path. So what are we going to do? Guys, I want you to know from the bottom of my heart that we live in a world today like I illustrated with you. The stats don't lie. And yes, we live in a woke culture today that puts you on a square. And there's so much craziness in our world today. 
I, I, I don't even dare to go there right now. Let me just say this. We live in a world today that we're freaked out. You know why we're alone? We don't even know what to say in public. I go on that square. Oh, I'm wrong. If I step over here, oh, I'm wrong. But in Christ, we have each other. And we've got a guiding document that keeps us out of craziness. And we can live together and we can live in victory. Can this happen in marriage? It must. But must this happen with everyone? It must. Young men, young women, married men, married women in this room. Yes, I'm an appeal to you. Yes, cultivate that one plus one equals three with your spouse. But where's that friend? Even outside of that marriage relationship, who's really going to help you roll with Jesus? Do you have one? The blessing of it is so profound. So I've got three ideas here as we just wrap up today. We've looked at so many scriptures. But the turning point, first and foremost, is resolve to pursue deep friendships. Yes, deep koinonia. I'm asking you to make up your mind this morning. You online at 180 Homes, wherever you are and in this auditorium, I'm asking you to make up your mind. I don't need you to have the answers right now, but I need you to resolve in your heart. I need a draft horse. Second, Take the time to ask God for the gift of, deep, of a deep friend. I'm going to ask everyone right now, read this. And I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes right now. We're going to work this out right now. Caleb can come up right now, buddy. I'm going to ask you to take the time right now to ask God for the gift of a deep friend. Right now. And if you feel like you have one, I'm going to ask you to ask God for that person around you that's crying out in their soul. God, give me one. Ask God to give them one. Just spend a couple of moments just praying, asking God, God, would you grant me that friend? Now I want you to look to the screen. I'm going to give you the third one. And this is, I'm going to put on a challenge to you right now. Take a risk and put yourself out there the way you want to be loved. This week, for those of you that don't know, I host a morning radio show on Moody Radio from 5 to 9 a.m. We were talking about warning signs, and one of the warning signs we hit was the warning sign of walking alone in this world. And I asked people to call in who had found a friend that was closer than a brother or a sister. And it was amazing, the calls that we got in. One guy, his name was Ron. And Ron called in, and this is what he said. He said, I've been a business owner for 50 years, and for 50 years, I've been going to church, but I've never had a deep, close friend. And you know what he said? You ready for this? On air. He said, I had suicidal thoughts. 
He said, I got invited to a three-day retreat, and I put myself out there. And when I put myself out there, I found some friends. He goes, it's the craziest thing. I went 50 years without a friend, but I put myself out there. I risked it a little bit, and now I've got 20 people I consider friends. A few of them are close. Humble business owner dude just letting his hair down saying this is where I'm at. Gail called in among the myriad calls we got. And she said, you know, I, I decided what I'm going to do is start asking questions of people, of things that I think might call them out and be of interest to them. You know what she started doing? Taking a risk, putting herself out there the way she wanted to be loved. You know, sometimes in the body of Christ, we sit back and we say things like, Oh, I, I, I can't find anyone that wants to be my friend. Go be a friend. Go be a friend. Open your heart. Let them get a peek inside. You want to drag off 24,000 pounds of payload? Get a friend. You want to not freeze to death at night? Get a koinonia friend. You want to go walk down dark alleys and win a street fight with Staten? Get a friend. Father, thank you. Thank you. Thank you that you're calling us deeper still.